And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today I have the author Avi, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time. From I first read it when I was in middle school. It's called Something Upstairs. I consider it one of the greatest ghost stories ever. Uh, he also wrote The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, Nothing But the Truth, The Man Who Was Poe, uh, the Crispin series. Yeah, I mean, he's a very prolific author. He has over 80 books under his belt, and I don't think he's going to quit anytime soon, and he shouldn't. Um, this was a very insightful, enlightening conversation. Hello, Spike. This is Spike, everybody. Uh, and um, it's a conversation I've been wanting to have since the early 90s. And I finally got to have it. And I finally got to ask him, is something upstairs actually true? And uh, <laughs> I also got to ask him his thoughts on ghost stories, which I actually kind of want to unpack more down the road. I think I want to talk to more people about ghost stories. So. This gave me some ideas, and uh, I again, I, I think if you're into writing, especially if you're into YA writing or if you're into education and um, educating children, uh, this episode is for you, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Thanks. Bye. That's the oh. way the momentous meetings begin. Can you hear me? <laughs> Every time. Right. How you doing? I'm okay. We had a foot of foot and a half of snow here last night. I tell you, uh, in in the city, we haven't had we hadn't had snow for a couple of years, and as soon as we got that first foot, I was excited. But like within a day, I was I was ready for spring. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm at the moment in Denver, where uh, I live most of the year up in the mountains. We get about. I don't put it this way. Last week, five feet of snow came down, so which is why I'm in Denver. Because you want the snow. I don't like snow. No. My wife likes snow. Ah. But uh, the deal is, three months here, nine months up there. So that works. You, you've moved around a lot. Where, where, where have you enjoyed living the most? Um, well, up in the mountains, it's really very beautiful and uh, very calm. It's uh, wonderfully isolated. Our nearest neighbor is three quarters of a mile away. We live in a forest. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite gorgeous. And... Uh, Lots of wild animals around. And recently, our kids gave us a nighttime camera, which they set up. And we're getting views of the creatures who visit us at night. It's really 
it's fun. It's sort of spooky, but it's it's nice. Yeah, I always remembered. Um, I grew up on an island off the coast of Maine, and I loved waking up in the middle of the night and seeing like reflective eyes peering in. Right, <laughs> that was Which always island? fun. Which island in Maine? It's called Long Island, but it's about the size of Central Park, and okay. it's about three hundred people, and we're all related in some way or another. <laughs> I once spent a few weeks at Vinyl Haven. Yeah, that's a little further north. Is it? Well, they still had a lot of. I remember lobster for a dollar each. So. Yeah, um, yeah, we were a lobster fishing community uh, for the most part. Yep, I'm allergic to shellfish, so I got out as soon as oh, I could. That's... <laughs> Not a good place to live. <laughs> yeah. I'm allergic to selfish and I get motion sickness, so commuting by ferry was also not an option. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I'm doing this podcast, um, and I, I started it more or less because I really wanted to talk to creators um, because with New York locked down for a year now, it you know, I'm used to going to film festivals and going to the art gallery scene uh, and, and stuff like that. And it's just not been happening. And I'm like, I need to find a way to talk to creators. And so uh, th th that's why I started this. And um, April is National Poetry Month. So I figured I'd only do writers. And um, I, I reached out to you because um, it, it was sort of a for me, it's been a long time coming. I've had a lot of questions for you ever since I was a kid. And uh, I, I feel like the child version of me is going to come out slowly throughout this, um, which um, I don't know what that'll look like, though. Just fair warning. Okay. Did you see the piece in the New York Times today about podcasts? No. I, big... I usually don't read them till the evening. Oh, well, there's a big piece about how podcasting has exploded and you, you'll be interested in it. So, yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Um, it's, it's become, I, I mean, I've been wanting to do this thing, this podcast for a while, but the infrastructure wasn't in place initially. Uh, but now there are services to help people with the various technical things that um, I otherwise wouldn't want to focus on. Right. One of the things that puzzles me is, can you tell the size of your audience? Yes. Um, and it's terrifyingly accurate to the hour. Really? <laughs> so one hour I'll have, I'll be in the double digits. Um, and then the next hour I'm in the single digits and it's a huge letdown. And you, it's almost like a, it lights a fire to, for you to keep trying to figure out ways to get people to listen. <laughs> Uh, the worst is when you're in the triple or quadruple digits, and then you go to the single digits. <laughs> so do you broadcast at the, I don't know how it works, at the same time each day? or So everything's pre-recorded, and right. um, I'll go through the an editing process, and then I'll upload it and schedule it ahead of time to a service called Anchor. Okay. Um, and you can basically just, it's just basically an organizing feature and it, it's, it gets really technical and I don't 100% know what I'm talking about, but there's a thing called an RSS feed, which I send to Apple, Google, all these different platforms. And so somebody will have one of those apps and they'll be able to get my feed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's as much as I know about how it works. Okay. <laughs>
Um, you have a lot of books. I think you're the most pro prolific writer I've had on here. Oh, I'm um, sorry. As, actually, as far as published content, um, some sources say 60, other sources say 80. Which one is more accurate? It's 82. 82. You mean you haven't read them all to prepare for this? <laughs> I uh, reread all of the original ones I remember reading, and uh, um, I had my girlfriend reading. And then I also read um, the Crispin book. Um, I, I, I rented it from the library called Cross of, Cross of Lead because that got some press. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I loved revisiting the ghost stories. <laughs> which I want to talk about. Um, I don't, I also don't want to ask you the same questions that you probably ask all the time, but I'm going to probably end up touching upon some of the same subjects. And so sure. for that, I apologize. I don't want to annoy you. Um, That's not a do you get feedback from, you ever get feedback from adult readers who, who read you as a, um, as a child where, because one of the things that struck me rereading everything is how dark the stories are. And back then they didn't come off as really all that dark. They were just really good stories. I, I do get responses. Uh, it's a little, it, it, it's a little daunting when you get a note that said, I read your book 30 years ago, but I'm not so sure that's a compliment. Yeah, I guess it is. But yeah, that comes up, uh, and there are some books that people. One of the things that's interesting about children's books, and the way they are read, is not infrequently, and it's not just with me and my books. I've heard this from many other authors. So, a young person reads a book, and something in the experience opens them up to reading that didn't before, for whatever reason. And so you do get, uh, I get notes saying, uh, I read such and such a book when I was a kid and it turned me on to reading or I've never forgotten it. Um, if you're curious, you can go to my website and, and Occasionally, someone will say that, you know, I, there's some comment that I make and they uh, respond and say, oh, I read that when I was, et cetera. Uh, yeah, it's one of the things that adults, let me, I'll tell you a story that this happens, used to happen a lot. I'd go to say a, a cocktail party or a gathering and so on. You don't know anybody and so forth. So somebody comes up to you and says, oh, hi, what do you do? I write novels for kids. And they'll say, uh, novels for kids? I didn't know there was such a thing like that. Well, yeah, I, I write those. Oh, that's interesting. And they wander off. 20 minutes later, and I've timed this, 20 minutes later, they come back and they say, yeah, I was thinking what you said, and did you ever read A Wrinkle in Time? You ever heard of that book? Or did you ever read uh, Hatchet? 
I, I, I suddenly realized I read that. And then all of a sudden, they start coming out with all these books that they read. And uh, they are adults and they're readers. And they wouldn't have been readers unless they read as a kid. Not necessarily all the time. My wife was somebody who came to reading later in life, but that's neither here nor there. But that happens really often. And, and then they forget it until they're reminded of it. And then all of a sudden they start wanting to tell you about all the books that they read. And what's sort of interesting is they speak about them as if they're the only ones who read them. In other words, you get this image that they're in their reading place. Where is it? In a chair, in their bed, in their corner. And they have this experience with this book that is unique to them. And they're surrounded totally by that book and no, nothing, nobody else. And it's very powerful, very, very powerful. Did you have an experience like that? Do you have an early memory of a book that blew your mind, as they say? Yeah. Um, well, actually, Hatchet was, is probably going to be one of them when he struck the um, the hatchet on the rock and got a spark for the first time. I'm like, he's going to light a fire, you know? Right, right, um, right, 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 right. So I, but also, like, honestly, something upstairs. I love ghost stories, and that was probably the one that got me into reading. And, and really? I read it after my, my initial, the grade level I think it was intended for because I was late to the game. Um, and then, yeah, the, I think those two books. But then there was also one called No Promises in the Wind. Um, I forget who the author is, and I and right. I hate that I did, but it's back there somewhere. On the Doesn't website. matter. You, you remember um, it. You but remember it was, the experience. It, yeah, it was it was just this story about these boys who um, they have to leave their home. It's during the Depression era, and they run away with the circus. And uh, he befriends this lady who plays a clown. I don't know. There's something really romantic about it, but also heartbreaking. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. That's the way it is. Now, something upstairs. I lived in that house. That's a real house. You can go on Google Maps and see it. Yeah, I am. And, um, and I, I the trivia. What? What was? What? I think the reason that book was accessible to me was I came from a New England town that is inextricably haunted by history. Uh, we it was um, it has a lot of history going all the way back to the colonial era, but then it also has a lot of World War II history because we have all these oil tanks buried underneath the island because it was a secret fuel depot for the U.S. Navy. Huh. And those ta those these big mounds in the middle of the island are still there, but nobody really we're not allowed to dig them up or anything. <laughs> um, so something about New England ghost stories that I I gravitate to. Um, and one of the interesting things about it, too, is it's presented almost in, in a way where you wonder if it's true or not. And there's no way to disprove somebody's experience. When, when the intro by the author says, this is his story, I believe him. 
<laughs> Hold on, I'm not hearing anything. Sorry. Okay. Sure what, oh, Th there we that's go. That's a curious thing about that book. When I first submitted it to my editor, it, that introduction was not there. However, when I first wrote the book, it was there, and then I took it out. And it's based on something that really happened to me. I was visiting a school. See how well you remember the book. If I was visiting a school, doing class visits and so forth. And a teacher says to me, will you have some time? There's some boy who's desperate to speak to you. And, uh, but he won't tell us why. Uh, well, of course, my curiosity is, is piqued, right? So sure, happy to do it. So I go through the day and the, and the teacher then pulls me aside. Okay, we have the boy in, in this private room. You can go see him now. So I go into this room. It's probably a conference room. And this kid is sitting there, 10, 11. And he's fiddling with his keychain. And I say, hi, my, you know, I'm Avi. I understand you really wanted to speak to me. He said, yeah, I do. Well, what's it all about? And he says, I just wanted to say hi. And <laughs> that was it. Totally inexplicable. But that's in the book. Yeah. Except it doesn't have that punchline, so to speak. But so I use that and... I can't tell you how many people who read that book say to me, was that true? One of the people in the publishing company called me up to ask me if it was true. And the answer is no. I mean, it's a, it's a story about time travel, you know? I mean. Yeah. They want so, it to be true, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> I want but, it to be true. But but the thing is that opening is true, right? I just yeah. told you. Except for the not the oh hi, I you know. <laughs> so that there's a whole sort of um term for that kind of story. It's called a framed story. Um that is to say it's a projection of the storyteller. Probably the most famous one of that is Henry James, The Turn of the Screw. And it starts off with a bunch of adults sitting around sharing stories. And this guy says, here, I'll let me tell you this story. And then the, the book starts. And uh, anyway... I've used it a couple of times. It's very effective because it draws the reader in just the way it drew you in and gives it a feeling of uh, verisimilitude. And, and it's not a coincidence that Turn of the Screw is a ghost story as well. So it's not as if the way I explain it is if I said to you, the other day I met this ghost he was walking down the street and we got into a talk. You'd say, yeah, sure, okay. But if I say to you, I heard this weird story the other day. This guy told me he was traveling on 
on a bus and this guy said I and, and then you know proceeds to tell me it has this level by removing it the narration somehow it draws it closer I, I don't pretend to understand it but it works it does work it's really good yeah it re- kind of re- it reminds me of um, what the Coen brothers did with Fargo insisting that everything is true even though not- Right, <laughs> it's true, uh, right. but you, you, you somehow find a way to access the story more. Um, now, the other side to this thing, uh, that particular book, as I said, I lived in that house, yeah. and um, the local historical society in Providence, as a way of teaching kids about Providence history, conducted tours around the town. I don't know if you know Providence; it's a very beautiful city. Anyway. And so they'd bring crowds of kids to my door who wanted to look at the house where the ghost was. And then they would chant, ah, V, ah, V, trying to pull me out of the house and so forth. Anyway, the house is still there. And recently I wrote another book that also began in Providence. And I figured I might as well start this in the same house. Why not? So... There's nothing similar to the books except the house starts in the same place. I read somewhere that that um, you don't believe in ghosts, but you like ghost stories. Is that true? My gag is I don't I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe in ghost stories. Uh, I feel the same way. I I can't believe I can't find a way to rationalize ghosts, but I've been obsessed with ghost stories for so long. Um, and I don't know why. And I was wondering if you ever thought about like the significance of ghost stories in our culture. And um, I've been trying to figure out why, like, as a creative species, why they exist and continue to, you know, the, it's the genre that won't die. <laughs> and I don't know if it ever will. Uh, I suspect uh When you get older, I'm older than you, you begin to think how incredibly stupid death is. I mean, what's the point? You live all these years only to die? Now, I don't happen to be a religious person, but lots of religions solve that problem by um, creating ghosts, right? Belief in ghosts is a belief in some sort of afterlife. But I once saw a ghost. I really did. It's a complicated story, but the gist of it is I was walking alone. I was, what, 18, 19, down this. I was going to visit somebody, and I was coming by surprise. I was coming to visit them by surprise, and... I had a, where I was left off near their house was about three miles. So I had a three mile walk and I was coming down this country road and off to the right was this hill. And um, on the top of the hill was a church. And curiously enough, on the side of the hill was a cemetery, which is an odd place for a cemetery on a hill, but there it was. And as I was walking, there was a it was summer, so there was a, a summer storm, cloudburst. 
So I stood under a tree for a while. Rain came for about 10, 15 minutes and then went and then I kept going. And as I passed the cemetery and I looked up and there was this vertical shaped gray mist spot over us, a grave. And it was in the shape, it looked to me like a, like a human form. And it stopped me dead, to make the <laughs> joke. And I just stared at it, and it really looked like a ghost. And it was so convincing that I walked up to the spot to see if I could get closer, and it vanished. But if I didn't believe in ghosts, if I did believe in ghosts, then I would tell you I saw a ghost. But I'm such a rational man and so mechanistic in my thinking, I could, tell, I could give you an explanation for it. But it's nice to think it was a ghost. Yeah. So it's the romantic side. There was, yeah, the whole thing with like, so this is the intriguing thing is as a skeptic, I'm intrigued by the continuity of experiences. So this idea of walking to it and not having it be there anymore is so consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. There's this in Staten Island where I live. You hear a lot of stories from people who worked after 9-11 where I was out here where they were sifting through the rubble. And they, they talk about wisps of black that when they try to go to them, they'll vanish. Or there's even um, this, these recurring stories from people who worked at the sifting site of an African-American a woman who was dressed in a Red Cross nurse's outfit from the 1950s handing out sandwiches, but whenever anybody tried to get close, she wasn't there. And I'm just like, that That stuff blows my mind because you have consistent people who otherwise wouldn't have a way to... I don't, I don't see a way or a reason for them to coordinate these stories. And I don't know. I just love that stuff. It blows I, my mind. I was... Uh, I used to have a dark room. I used to do photography. And in my father's old house, when he passed on, my mother had passed on, I found a spool of film. And I took it. I had no idea what it was. And I developed it and was processing it. And it was pictures that he had taken of my mother. And... I put this in my enlarger and there was this picture of my mother um, standing next to my twin sister, my, my sister being two or three, but my mother was standing there in a fur coat. I hadn't given any thought to that fur coat for 60 years, but the instant I saw it, I could smell it. I there was no, no doubt in my mind that I smelled this coat. And 10 seconds later, 10, two seconds later, that sensation was gone. And no matter how much I looked at that picture, I could not recapture that. Now, that was sort of a ghostly experience, right? Oh, yeah. That counts. Okay. And... There's no question in my mind that I smelled that 
Now, again, I can give you rational answers for that, but why bother? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of the term. There's a term for that, but I forget what it is, and I don't want to remember it right now. Um, <laughs> I had uh, I had some notes here about um, when Jan and I were read, rereading some of your some of your books. Um, uh, by the way, my my before we move on from ghosts, my something upstairs has the original cover. I, I can't yeah. find this cover anymore. So, now that publishers often revert to stupid covers after a while. I don't know. I noticed that um, because they, with all they the, almost never make them better. All the all the new ones, like you got, they got rid of the boy who was on the cover of the right. nothing but the truth, and they got them. and for some reason we're looking at the back of Charlotte's head. I don't I don't get it, but. <laughs> Um, the, the, the contents, what's important anyway, but, um, but you can tell a book by its cover, right? People judge it. I, I try to tell them not to, but they'll do it. They're going to do it. Anyway. It's true. Um, well, when we were reading, re I was rereading, she was reading for the first time, a lot of the, she was, I think she was going into the Crispin mm -hmm. series, but, um, we noticed that uh, this recurring theme of truth and who gets determined who gets to determine truth and i was wondering if that's something that you say, say it again so i'm clear uh, sure um we were trying to figure out if there if there were recurring themes across the body of work that we had the least uh delved into mm -hmm. and one of the things that we came up with was this idea of truth and who gets to determine what the truth is and what I want, what I'm interested in is whether or not that's something you've identified. And if so, did you identify it ahead of time? Or if it's just something that you don't realize you're thinking about, but like when I write, I'm not actively thinking about communication, but somehow, some way all my work ends up being about a lack of communication <laughs> between people. And I was wondering what with you, are you, thinking about truth is this the first time you've heard somebody mention truth as an idea no, that... no no i mean nothing but the truth is about that concept yeah. and and uh, it seems to me and as i don't know when i first began to notice it as a thinking adult or person that what we call truth and that's defined in this book nothing but the truth is you and i can have the same experience but we don't have the same experience we had, we we experience the experience in a different way and it's not to say you are right and i am wrong but it does mean that things get very complicated <laughs> and it, you know it's like the argument in its crudest sense with your wife. But I did do that, I say to her. You didn't do this. I did do it. You told me that you did. No, I didn't. Now, that's pretty fundamental, but it happens all the time. Or my kids are grown up, but didn't you tell me that you did X? No, I didn't tell you. Yes, you did tell me you were going out, that you're going to go to Jack's house, but you really went to Susan's house. No, I didn't, Dad. I really didn't. Well, one of the things that is 
so baffling to me and difficult for people. We've just come out of this time with President Trump. He lied all the time. But he seems to have believed his lies. And when people believe their lies, they, they're pretty convincing. And I can convince you of something that didn't really happen. But at a certain point, I'm believing <laughs> that it, and, and that's a very complicated understanding. I remember reading an interview with one of, um, who was it? I can't think of him at the moment, but it was an important government official who during, who was in charge of some aspect of the military service during World War II. And what he said at one point is that he was talking about the bombing, the saturation bombing of Japan. And he said that if we lose this war, they're going to put us on trial as war criminals. But if we win the war, we're going to put them on, the, on trial as war criminals. And, you know, it, it's very complicated when you think about that as to how do we understand that. And, I mean, here, this thing that happened at the, uh, the national capital, January 6th, and now people are making up stories about what happened. And they, they seem to believe them. It's very, and why do people do that? Is it, are they conscious of it? Are they unconscious of it? Anyway, I've long, I, I don't know when I first noticed this in my life, but the complexity of what we call what is true and not true is fast, it's, I find it fascinating. And it's not resolvable. Yeah. I, uh, I think a lot about the people who were, buying into all these ridiculous conspiracy theories like the QAnon and the pizza, the pizza place that went out of business because of it. Right. Uh, the Hillary Clinton thing. But, um, and, you know, I used to be obsessed mostly from a storytelling standpoint with conspiracy theories. And um, at one point after I moved to New York, uh, I talked with someone who's just, who read some of my short stories. He's like, I think you're giving people too much you're giving them too much power that they don't have. And I've had, you know, he said specifically said, <clears throat> I've had a lot of these congressmen and intelligence people at my dinner table. And I could tell you, nobody can keep a secret. <laughs> so, you know, people just love talking even when they're not supposed to. And so that kind of got me disinterested. And I think if more people could just get out more and talk and talk to people who are actually doing these jobs, these civil service jobs, you know, they, you know, Rather than saying, oh, what they call deep state are really just civil service people who've just been on the job a long time. And if they could just get to know these people, know that they have families, that they just want to have their kids as well as educated as anybody else, then I think that would be a way to um, to sort of quell all of this disinformation and this sort of hunger for disinformation. But at the same time, 
I don't know how to get people to do that because a lot of people can't even name the person that represents them in their state legislator or on their city council. And it's just like. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, uh, about nine months ago, I won't mention his name, her name, whether she's a doctor or a lawyer, but somebody who I go to for advice. And this person says, I don't know how it even came up. And he says, something about Trump came up. And he suddenly says to me, I love that guy. I believe everything he says. I think even more like him every day. Now, this guy is somebody I'm going to for advice. And I've always felt that was good advice. So now what do I think? If he's, if he believes all this stuff that I don't believe, why am I listening to him for advice about something? And yet, as far as I know, he's giving me good advice in this area. So how do you relate to that when somebody you trust on one level is also from my perspective, a little nuts? Do I still listen to his advice? It's curious. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been dealing with that too. Um, I especially have been dealt with that in 2016 after he who shall not be named got elected. Um, And, you know, my mom who taught me, who basically helped me to my moral compass growing up, suddenly her moral compass didn't seem like it was there anymore. And it was just like, how can you, how can you listen to these talking heads on all these right wing stations who, by the way, would have been the bullies in school that you were so pissed off with while right. I was growing up? Like they're the same people like Ben Shapiro was a bully. Uh, all those guys on Fox News were probably bullies, too. Those were the people where I would come home crying because of them. Like right. and now you're like digesting all this garbage. And I just I don't know where that happened it happened sometime between 2001 and now just people started digesting all this misinformation and um i don't know what happened because my moral compass i feel like it's intact and it you know i got i developed that growing up from her and from my father who i i don't know where he stands politically but she's she was a trump trump woman and during the capitol hill riots like she made it very clear that that seemed like to her the right thing to do. And I'm like, Oh my God. No. <laughs> well, what, one of the things that's always fascinated me, and maybe this is appears in my books, people are capable of believing things which are diametrically opposed to one another. They, they, they can be very kind and loving to this group of people and be full of hatred to this group of people and not see that there's a contradiction between those. I think that's fairly common in our world. I don't know. Yeah. I, like, I like your cat, by the way. Galahad. That's Galahad. He's, right. um, we have, so we live in a one bedroom New York City apartment, so that's pretty easy to imagine. It's pretty tight. We have eight, and they're all rescues. Well, he looks very dignified up there. Yes. Um, so that's that's the main bookshelf. Oh. And I have it. I have a sheet up there because he likes to lay up there. 
Okay. <laughs> we cater to them maybe a little too much. Uh, on your books, um, do you do you ever uh, you visited a lot of schools over the years? Have have you ever figured out what the ratio is between the types of books girls like versus the types of books boys gravitate to? Like, are there certain titles from your selection that you'll find more boys want to talk about? Well, um, there are a lot of strong females in my books. Um, and so that appeals to girls. Yeah. In fact, when I wrote that book, uh, True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, um, I remember, yeah, that one, there were adults who complained to me that why are you the first one to write this kind of book? You should have been a woman who wrote this book. But I was raised, my mother was a feminist early, and that's the way I was raised. And uh, so that comes fairly natural to me. Um, and uh, I know a lot of girls read my books. Uh, now, Teachers tell me that that cover uh, of True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, when they hold it up to their class, the boys say, I don't want to read that, which is a product of bad marketing on the part of the publisher to put a cover on that is going to be so explicitly that way. But then the same teachers will tell me when they start to read the book, the boys go right along with it, so... I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that as in terms of readership. On the other hand, I wrote a, recently wrote a, a collection of short stories about the relationship. Each story is about boys and their fathers. And, um, Professionally, it got very good reviews, but on things like Goodreads, there were a lot of complaints from women. I don't want, I don't want to hear bad things about fathers, about how fathers bully their kids or are not emotionally attached to their children. And yet, any psychologist will tell you this is a serious problem in our culture, as it is in many cultures. But these women didn't want to hear that. So, it's okay. That's what trigger warnings are for. Um, let's see here. Yeah, the truth. Uh, yeah, truth emerged in Charlotte Doyle as well, with the captain. Um, right. In her perceptions. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to show you how much research we both did prior to this podcast. Jan wrote a summary of the book without words for me, which goes on for three pages. <laughs> and uh, she basically broke down your, the entire book because I didn't have time to get to it <laughs> before Thursday. But I thought that was really cool. Um, what? And let me know if you're getting tired of this. <laughs> but I'm not. Um, Just talking. 
Yeah, yeah. What what does your writing practice look like? Because to turn out eighty odd books in anyone's lifespan is pretty remarkable. I mean, my one of my favorite MFA writing teachers really he, between his first book and his second book was twenty years. <laughs> like, how, how are you so prolific? Okay. Do you have kids? I don't. I have eight cats. Okay. Well, <laughs> cats are. Well, I, I over the years I've been responsible for six kids. Kids are very expensive, and um, writing is the way I make a living. Right? Yeah. And so I don't. I I don't. I love the romance of writing, but it's work and I like to do it. And I really love being published and having my books out in the world. And it just didn't, I, in a certain sense, my mode of thinking about writing is very Victorian. Uh, writers like Trollope, Dickens, Wilkie Collins, they just wrote. That's what they did. They didn't romanticize the process. They didn't wait for God to put a finger on their brains and say, write this book. You just did it. Um, one of my favorite stories about writers is Charles Dickens, who wrote uh, this wonderful book called Great Expectations. And he writes it because he's the editor of a magazine that publishes serial stories. And the serial story that he's publishing at that time is not going anywhere. Circulation is going down. So he says, I better write something quick to bring back readers. So he sits down and he writes Great Expectations. Good grief. I wish I wish I wish I would feel under such pressure and produce that kind of book. I mean, it's extraordinary book. And that he did this in this kind of forgive me, commercial way is an antithesis of all these romantic notions of what a writer should be. And yet that's what he did. And I have nothing but admiration for that. Nothing but admiration. And maybe in a certain sense, I have some of that feeling. This is what I do. This is my work. Do it. That's your job. You get up in the morning and you sit down and write. And since I need to support all these kids, I might as well write something good. You put that all together. And I love making up stories, I do. And I really enjoy writing. I mean, it's hard, but nothing makes, nothing makes me more elated than finishing a book. And nothing makes me more depressed because then I have to start another one, right? Yeah, I know that feeling, uh, okay. especially with film. Um, how many work in progress projects do you have going on at any given time? 
I would say more or less two because the publishing process in itself is slow. Um, right now, I'm waiting for final notes from an editor. He's very, very slow. I, I don't. I don't want to wait around for him. So I'm working on something new. Um, and so these things overlap. And uh, it's not that I plan to do them, but if I were an electrician, would I sit around and say, well, let me wait for someone to call me and then I'll work. Right now, I'm going to go out for a jog. I mean, you, I just don't think that way. You just, my job is to write. So. How um, how do you compartment your writing time versus just general? Life? Well, I'm not going to work on two books simultaneously, day by day. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so uh, here I'm working on a new book because I'm waiting for this editor. But the minute he comes back with his notes, I will drop this new project and focus 100% on the old project, so to get it done. But then when that's done, I'll go right back to this new thing. And since in a sense I've already sold it and I have a deadline, I have to do it, so. Anyway, I I, I don't think of it as, You know, I have a daughter who works. She's a scientist, medical scientist. She she goes to work every day. She works very hard. No one says, why are you going to work every day? Wouldn't you like to take a week or two off? Well, she she can't. (laughs) She has patience. She has medical work. No one asks her why. Why do you work every day? But they do ask me that. I don't know why. Could you? Is, is it possible that you enjoy it? I do enjoy it. <laughs> that doesn't That's good mean enough. it's. I mean, I'm working on this new book. I just, you know, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I don't know. The, the book takes place in the 1920s. And suddenly I say to myself, wait a minute, what did they eat for breakfast in the 1920s? And I have to find out. And it's not that hard to find out, but I do have to find out because I try to make the books as accurate as possible. It's that kind of book. So the writing gets pushed aside and I start doing some research and so forth. But that's part of the process and so forth. And uh, a perfect example of this is, okay, so same book. She has to put on a coat because it's chilly. Well, what kind of coats did people wear? Turns out that people wore cloth coats, but they had fur around the collar. Not cat fur, but who knows? Mink. All right. So I say to myself, okay, so she's going to, this girl, 
has to have a coat, but what would she have? Well, she was raised up on a sheep farm. That's part of the story. So she would, her mother would have put a, a collar of sheep fur around her neck, right? So, I mean, it just, you just have to find these things out and then it makes sense. So, but that's all part of the writing process. The hard part of the writing process is last year I wrote a book about Venice and I had to go to Venice. I mean, break my heart. It, it's, but somebody has to do the research, right? So it's not, it's not all hard. It's not all hard work. <laughs> no, I, I feel like the research portions can be really enlightening, especially like earlier this week. Yeah, I you know I write these screenplays that are based on growing up on the island, and um, I like taking historical events that I remember and relearning the details. Like there, I was writing a scene depicting a, uh, the crash of a medical helicopter in 1993 that happened off the coast of the island, and how I remembered it is how I've remembered it for the past, however long it's been since 1993. Just reading about it this week, I'm like, wait a minute. There were three people that died? I thought they were all rescued. And then, like, there were just, like, the timing, too. Like, I remember hap it happening around 5 p.m. It happened at 8.30. You know, that sort of... And it, I love the research, especially when I'm researching stuff I thought I knew. Right. So, I mean... I don't know. Did you say you read Crispin across the lead? Did yeah, you read that? Yeah, I got it. Okay. Got it the when I first wrote the first draft of that, there was no cross of lead in it. It wasn't part of the book. But I went to England to do research for that book. And I went to the British Museum. And I came across this display case. And it was filled with these little crosses of lead that were distributed during the 14th century Great Plague. And they were very crude and very touching because they clearly were, there was absolutely nothing artistic about them, hammered out, cut out of sheet, sheet lead, but clearly be in the book and and so if you can imagine that book without the cross of lead it was until i saw those in the display case and then i rewrote the book and now do you call that research stumbling across a if i had turned down the corridor to the left instead of the right i wouldn't have seen that it's hardly what I call complicated research, but it is research in a way. It's certainly not just factual research, but probably more important in this context, emotional research, yeah. because that had an impact on me. So anyway. I wonder how often that kind of, that, that happens with creators where they think they're going to go one direction and then something they couldn't have ever anticipated changes the project almost completely. There's a, a, 
a thing that Robert Frost, the great poet, once said that I, I adore. He said, if there are no surprises for the writer, there are no surprises for the reader. If there are no surprises for the writer, there's no surprises for the reader. It's a wonderful idea. And, and I love the idea that the writer, the artist, it, when they are, creation is also a form of discovery. And I'm telling myself the story. And um, sometimes as I approach the end of a book, I stop writing and I go back to the beginning and I work through the whole thing with the idea that I'll get some emotional clue as to what should really happen here. And that happens often. And I love it when it does, because it tells me to use a Hemingway type phrase, it's true. And I, a few months ago, I was working on a book and having a lot of trouble with the ending and did that and realized that the ending of the book was embedded in the book all along. And all of a sudden, it revealed itself, so to speak. And I knew it was right. And it made such sense that I don't understand why I didn't notice it before. But I love it when that happens. And, and it's an emotional thing for me, and I, I love it. And again, to quote Hemingway, it's, it's true. So I like that. That's fantastic. Um, well, this has been a good conversation and uh, I wish we could go on. Um, I'm out of bullet points. Okay. <laughs> but um, I'm glad that, I, I, that, that you responded to my letter. For, for the listeners, I sent you an old school letter. The, the real way letters should be sent, <laughs> not an email. <laughs> and asked you to come on here and you responded and I really appreciate it. Well, my great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, appreciate good questions. <laughs> uh, I hope they were good. Uh, I hope I didn't step, step on the same ones over and over again. Um, Different. Seeing your cat reminds me, I wrote a short story once about a, a kid who hates school and he has his cat at home who, as far as he's concerned, is always sleeping like your cat there. So he works out a way to change and he'll turn into a cat and spend his time at home sleeping and the cat will go to school. And it's a story about how that works out, which it's not the way the kid expects, but anyway. But he looks very real. I love the way cats relax. It's, yeah. I, wish I, could, I wish I could sleep that way. He was uh, he was part of a, a litter of five, and um, they've never been outside this apartment. They were born in here, and they've never known hunger, and they've only ever known good humans and good human contact. And I got to tell you, I learned so much about how much we as 
uh, a species have screwed up animals because previous to this, my experience with cats was touch and go. But to have five cats all prove that we can actually, the way we interact with animals can make those animals better. Uh, yeah. And they're the sweetest. And not only do they have individual personalities, they understand human conversation. They know when we're talking about, you know, Galahad knows when I'm talking about him. Uh, his brother Spike knows when we're talking about him. It's it's amazing. It's fun. Yeah, they know it's their fun. names. Okay, so you need to get you need to get an animal psychologist on your pod someday. Okay. Um, okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank right, you bye. so much. Take care. And that was my episode with Avi. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved having this conversation. I love that he was able to get back to me and actually find time to do this. I, and really, I, it, was, it really went down the way I explained it. Like on his website, he has um, a P.O. box where uh, children can write him. And so, <laughs> you know, tuning into sort of my younger self, I'm like, I'm going to write him like a snail mail letter and see if he'll come on my podcast. Like I'm a young podcast. If I go through a publicist or an agent for the most part, they're just going to ignore me or they're going to ask for metrics that I can't possibly give them metrics that they're going to want to see. So I'm like, I'll just write him as a fan. And he got back to me and we were in touch by email for a while, coordinating this thing. And you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. And this is proof because now I had my historic conversation with Avi I nerded, it, I nerded out for a little while on ghost stories, and uh, now you all got to listen to it. So thanks, and I'll see you for the next installment of the National Poetry Month uh, series of writers. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for visiting my YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell notification. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.